0: You are listening to audio from Faith Church. If you are in the Seminole, St. Pete area, we would love for you to join us on a Sunday. To learn more, visit us at faithrs.org. If you have your copy of God's Word, grab that. And let's go to the book of Psalms right in the middle of your Bible. You'll find the book of Psalms. And if you don't own a Bible, we would love to give you one today on those tables in the back of the room. You'll find some hardback Bibles. You can take one now. You can take one on your way out of worship today. That's our gift to you. Just start reading that Bible and see what happens in your life in the days ahead. Our text this morning is going to be Psalm 1. Psalm 1, if you're willing and able, I invite you to stand with me in honor the reading of God's Word. We stand to show our reverence and our readiness. We're eager to hear from God this morning. So listen carefully to these words. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows. The Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Well, today we are beginning a new series, somewhere in the Psalms, throughout the summer months we'll be looking at the book of Psalms, not all of the Psalms, there are 150 of them. We're not going to try to cram all of that into a summer series. We'll look at a selection of the Psalms. This is an ideal study for the summer, I think, because the book of Psalms is different from, say, the book of Romans. If we were to go through the book of Romans over the summer, you would need to have an understanding of the flow of the argument. In other words, you would need to understand Romans 1 and 2 before you can really understand what's happening in Romans 3. It's not that way with the Psalms. Each of the Psalms is like a standalone sermon and that's what makes it so perfect for the summer because for many of us our pattern over the summer is going to be here one week, gone the next, right? We'll be vacationing and by all means everybody needs seasons of respite so take your vacations and then whenever you find yourself in town gather with God's people on the Lord's Day and you will benefit from the Psalm of the day. So that's what we'll be doing Over the summer. Now, today we'll look at Psalm 1, but before we do, I want to help you get an understanding of this collection of Psalms. In the Hebrew Bible, the heading for this book is the Book of Praises. The Book of Praises. The word Mizmor in Hebrew, which is where we get our word Psalm, it's a translation of the word Psalm, it means melody or song. So think of this collection as a sacred treasury, a treasury of sacred lyrics, the most ancient hymn book of God's people. Really, that's what this book is. It's a hymn book. For thousands of years, the Psalms have been at the heart of the life of God's people. In fact, I think it's fair to say that every aspect of Christianity is covered somewhere in this hymn book. Martin Luther, who was a great German reformer, put it like this. The Book of Psalms is a Bible in miniature, in which all things which are set forth more at length than the rest of the scriptures are collected into a beautiful manual. So if you want to better understand the message of the Bible, read the Psalms. That's Luther's counsel. But not only do we have every aspect of the Christian life covered in the Psalms, we also have every emotion. Everything a person is capable of feeling can be found somewhere in the Psalms. In his preface to his commentary on the book of Psalms, John Calvin, another reformer, said this, "...I have been accustomed to call this book an anatomy of all the parts of the soul. For there is not an emotion of which anyone can be conscious that is not here represented as in a mirror. If you're going through something in life and you need to find someone who can relate, you need to find someone who is feeling the things you feel, you will find it in the Psalms. Every emotion is expressed here. So you can cry out with the psalmist when you're feeling abandoned, When you're feeling rejected, you can cry out with the psalmist, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then when the darkness lifts and you begin to see clearly again, you can cry out with the psalmist, God, you were with me all along. So close, in fact, that you caught and bottled my tears. That's close. See that Hebrew title, the book of praises? It is indeed the perfect title because even the psalms of lament they have a point where they transition into thanksgiving and praise. We'll see that throughout this book. Now, this morning in Psalm 1, it's not a psalm of lament. It's a different different type of psalm. It's a wisdom psalm. In fact, it's one of three wisdom psalms known for its focus on the Word of God. Those are Psalm 1, Psalm 19, and Psalm 119. This is a wisdom psalm that teaches us that there are two and only two ways to live. Two and only two ways to live. This theme of the two ways is a popular one. You've seen it before in Star Wars. There's the light side and the dark side of the force. There is no other way. In The Matrix, there's the red pill and the blue pill. In Psalm 1, there's the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked. There is no other way. With that in mind, let's study this psalm together, observing three things in particular. First, how do we become righteous? If there are only two ways, and we want to be righteous, then the pivotal question of the day is, how do we become righteous? So we've got to start there, how to become righteous. Second, the practices of the righteous. What does the life of the righteous person look like? And third and finally, the result of those practices. What will these practices produce within us? So there's the table of contents for the day. How to become righteous? The practices of the righteous person and the result of those practices. You ready? Yeah? Okay, here we go. Number one, how to become righteous. We're going to start at the end of the psalm then jump back to the beginning. Verses 5 and 6. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. The reason we start at the end is because here at the end we see very clearly the two and only two ways to live the way of the righteous, the way of the wicked. Notice the psalmist tells us the Lord knows the way of the righteous. Now, this knowledge is more than just a mental awareness. It must be it's set in contrast to the wicked who will perish. So this is a knowledge that saves. Whatever this means, this knowledge that God has of the righteous, it is a knowledge that comes with salvation. This must be referring to how God knows the righteous as his own covenant people, as people who are living in relationship with him. So on the day of final judgment, when Jesus returns to vanquish all evil, the righteous will be spared. They will be saved, but not so the wicked. The wicked will perish. So I want to be found among the righteous. I assume you do too, but how? How do we become righteous? That word righteous at its core it has to do with living according to a standard God's standard the problem is none of us live according to God's standard if we turn to the New Testament for some help here Paul in Romans chapter 3 he quotes two of the Psalms Psalm 14 and 53 and here's what Paul says none is righteous And then, as if he's expecting someone in the congregation to stand up and say, but wait, wait what about me? I'm righteous. None is righteous. No, not one. You see how that works? Not one, not you, not me, not anybody. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Not even one. So you see, the Bible teaches us that we need righteousness and yet none of us has it. There is not one of us in our natural sinful state who can be identified as righteous. So we need righteousness, but we don't have it. Righteousness must then come from somewhere else. It must come from outside us, from beyond us from above us. I'm talking about an alien righteousness. Now, not alien in the sense of little green guys from outer space. That's the type of aliens that my Theology on Tap connection group always wants to talk about. It doesn't matter what the subject might be for the semester. Somehow we always come back around to questions like, are aliens real? Does the Bible say anything about Aliens, and then usually that shifts into, and what about ghosts? Are ghosts real? If an alien dies, can he become a ghost? An alien ghost? See, these are the questions that come up when you have a bunch of dudes in my living room with a pint in one hand and a theology book in the other. But that's not the type of alien I'm talking about this morning. When I say alien righteousness, I mean it's foreign to us. It doesn't belong to us. It's not of us. It comes from above, from beyond. It comes from Jesus. Paul is helpful if we turn to his other letter, 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 5.21, he says, For our sake, He, God, made Him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. For hundreds of years, theologians have referred to this verse as the great exchange. Remember that, the great exchange. See, we often talk about Jesus taking the punishment for our unrighteousness, dying on the cross for our sins, and that's true, but there's more than that. There's more than that. On the cross, our record of unrighteousness goes to Jesus and His record of perfect righteousness is transferred to us. That's the great exchange. That's what Paul says here. We don't have a righteousness of our own, but by faith in Jesus Christ, we have all the righteousness of Jesus. Think of it like this. Here's an analogy that might help. When Jamie and I were first married, I had nothing. I didn't own a house. I had no money in the bank. I was still in college with grad school ahead. So we decided at the time that Jamie would work full-time while I finished college. In those early days, our union meant so many things. But one of the things it meant was cash flow for me. (laughs) Cash flow. I had nothing. But because of my union with her, I had everything I needed. Praise God for the union of marriage. Praise God for union with Christ. You have no righteousness, neither do I. But because of our union with Him, we have access to all of His righteousness. That means when God the Father looks to you, He doesn't see your sin. He doesn't remember your mistakes. He sees the righteousness of Christ. Rest in that. Live in that, so many of us say we believe the gospel, but let me tell you the truth. What you really believe, your true theology, is whatever comes out your fingertips. It's how you live. Your theology comes out your fingertips. How are you living? Are you living as if you have the righteousness of Christ, you have access to that, or are you trying to earn your way to God? Rest in this wonderful truth of the great exchange. For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. How do we become righteous? Faith in Christ. It's the only way. It's the only way. That's point one. Now, how does a righteous person live? If we belong to God, if we have access to the righteousness of Christ, how do we live? Psalm 1 helps us here. Let's consider, secondly, the practices of the righteous person. And there are two that are mentioned very clearly here. The first one is the elimination of evil influences. Backing up to the beginning of the psalm, look at verse 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. The blessedness of which Psalm 1 speaks is a heavenly happiness. It's a deep and abiding joy. Because of being known by God. We belong to Him. He cares for us. We are His people. Nothing will ever change that. We are blessed. And as His people, we desire to live for Him. We desire to pursue godliness, not wickedness. Notice the three terms that are used here to refer to the people of the world. The wicked, sinners, and scoffers. There's an increasing intensity here. First, the people of the world are called the wicked or the ungodly, meaning they have no desire for God. They don't care about God and His Word. Secondly, they're called sinners, and that emphasizes their act of rebellion against God. And then third and finally, they're scoffers. They are verbally vicious people who ridicule the righteous. Now that sounds familiar, doesn't it? The scoffers run the media in our day. Those are the three terms that refer to the people of the world. But now, how is a righteous person supposed to respond to all of that? How are we to interact with those evil influences? Notice the three verbs. And again, notice the increasing intensity. First, the righteous person does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. To walk in the Bible is an idiom. It means the way you live, right? It means that we don't live the way the world lives. We don't go where they're going. We don't ask for their counsel. Remember this. If you assemble with the wicked, wickedness will assemble in you. If you assemble with the wicked, wickedness will assemble in you. That's what Psalm 1 is warning us about. The righteous person does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor does he or she stand in the way of sinners. He doesn't stop to take a closer look at the lifestyle of the rebellious person, wondering, would it be better if I went that way? There's no pausing and stopping. And then finally, he or she doesn't sit in the seat of scoffers. To sit with the scoffers means to join in everything they're doing join in their fellowship, become like them, become like the world. The bottom line here is that the righteous person who belongs to God does not belong to the world, does not behave like the world, does not think and speak like the world. Now, we need to be careful here that we don't go to an unbiblical extreme. While this is a very important topic, the elimination of evil influences, it does not mean Psalm 1 is not calling us to separate ourselves completely from society. That's not the message. The message is avoid the evil influences. I'm reminded of the Apostle John's letter, 2 John, a letter we've looked at in the past. In verses 10 and 11, he says this, If anyone comes to you, And does not bring this teaching, which in the context of John's letter is the teaching of the gospel, the Christ centered teaching. If anyone comes to you and does not bring the Christ centered teaching, do not receive him into your home. Don't let him in. Or give him any greeting, for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Now, why is John so harsh there? Why is he so stringent? Don't even open the door, don't greet the person. Remember that at the time John is writing, it's the first century, and in the first century, Christians didn't own buildings. They didn't have sanctuaries and worship centers like this. They certainly didn't have access to a campus like we have today. In those days, Christians met in homes. That was their context for worship. They relied on a few wealthy people in the church to open up their homes so that the assembly, the Christians, could gather for worship. So in that context, to open your door and to receive one of these evil influences, would be to give them a ready-made audience, to invite them right into the church, to say, come, teach. We're all ears. John is not calling us to be hateful, to be ugly, disrespectful, even to people we would call false teachers. Elsewhere in the Bible, we're called to pray for false teachers. What he's saying here is that we must be careful about giving them a platform. Don't provide a non-critical ear. Don't just sit back and listen. Don't do anything that would support their ministry because that would be to take part in their wicked works. So this is the first practice of the righteous person who belongs to God. Eliminate evil influences. So let me pause and ask you there. Where are some of the evil influences in your life right now that you need to eliminate? Are you listening to people, reading people, watching people? That now in this moment you're experiencing conviction and you're saying to yourself, you know what, that is an evil influence. Act on it. Do something about it. Cut it out. But there's a second practice. Not only are we called to eliminate the evil influences, but also to concentrate on God's word. To concentrate on God's word. Verse 2. But his, the righteous person's, delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day day and night. The law here could refer to the commandments of God in particular, the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, or just to the Scriptures in general. The point is divine revelation, the written Word of God. The Bible is like every other book in that it has human authors and human readers must open and interpret it. But the Bible is unlike every other book in that it has God as its ultimate author. It is God's revelation to us. The righteous person knows this and delights in the study of God's Word, loves to study God's Word. What do you love to study? When you have free time, where does your mind go? What do you enjoy reading? The righteous person loves the Word of God. Because he or she knows that in this word, in the Bible, we encounter God himself. And so, he meditates on the law day and night. This doesn't mean once in the morning and once in the evening. This is a figure of speech. It's called a merism. It's the two opposites to signify the whole thing. So, in other words, the righteous person thinks about God's word all the time. All the time. Now what about this word, meditate? We should talk about this for a moment because I think in our day, the word meditation has become more associated with non-Christian systems of thought than it has biblical spirituality. When I say meditation, you might think yoga or Buddhism, perhaps. But as we see here in Psalm 1, it is a distinctly Christian practice. When the Christian meditates, He or she is filling the mind with the weighty things of God. That's what it is, simply stated. Filling the mind with the weighty things of God. Meditation has four steps. I'm going to give them to you quickly. I think this will be very practical and helpful for you. Here's how you meditate as a Christian. First, interpretation. You open the Bible to a passage of Scripture. You read it carefully. You use some good tools, like a good study Bible... You discuss the verse with other Christians, doing everything you can to rightly interpret that passage of Scripture. This is always important, but it's especially important when a text is going to be memorized. The only thing worse than a Christian who can't quote Scripture is a Christian who can quote Scripture, but only misinterpreted and misapplied Scripture. So if you're going to memorize it, make sure you understand it rightly. A great example is Philippians 4.13. I bet most of us in this room could quote Philippians 4.13 if I asked you to. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. Through him who strengthens me. But do you know the context? Do you know what Paul is really talking about in that verse? It doesn't have anything to do with winning football games. It doesn't have anything to do with doing something stupid like leaping from one building to the next. You can have a 300-pound barbell resting on your chest and quote Philippians 4.13 all day long, and it's not going to help you push that barbell back up. That's not the context. In context, Paul is talking about being content. He's saying, when I'm starving, when I have nothing, when everything has been taken away from me, still I have Christ. And Christ is enough. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. So we have to interpret the passage correctly first. That's how meditation begins. Then we go to the second step, memorization. Now that we have the verse, we know what it means. We treasure it in our hearts. We memorize it, internalize it, metabolize it. When you store God's Word deep within you, something wonderful happens. When you store it deep within you, in those moments when you need it most, it will just come flowing out. So when you have memorized Philippians 4.13, and then suddenly, unexpectedly, you lose your job, because that is stored deep within you, without even having to think about it, you will respond with, I can do all things through Him who gives me strength. I didn't see this coming. Was not expecting this. Don't have a plan. But I can do all things through Him who gives me strength. Memorization. God's Word is always with you. But there's two other steps. I'm only halfway there. The third step of biblical meditation, meditation is communication with God. Now you've memorized that verse. You convert it into a prayer. And you talk with God about it throughout the day, throughout the week. God, I'm really struggling today. I I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't know how I'm going to pay the bills. My job is gone. I need you to strengthen me. I need you to strengthen my family. I, we, can do all things through Him who gives us strength. Convert that verse into a prayer. And then the final step is what I call self exhortation. You've talked with God about that verse, now you talk to yourself about it. You preach the passage to yourself. You ask questions of personal application. Am I living like I believe that verse? Am I living today like I believe, truly believe that I can do all things through Him who gives me strength? We talk with ourselves. This is biblical meditation. Let me tell you this, it's a life-changing practice. It's a life-changing practice. If you don't believe me, believe the psalmist. Look at where he takes us in closing. What are the results of these practices? Eliminating evil influences, concentrating on God's Word. Where does that take us? What's the result? In closing, verse 3, He, the righteous person, is like a tree. Like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. She prospers. We have here in the end this incredible picture, a beautiful picture of what the righteous person is like. He or she is like a tree, strong, sturdy, deep roots. Planted by the water. Planted by the water of God's Word. You know, we have in certain pockets of the church, Big C Church, certain pockets of the church, this sort of anti-intellectualism. We sometimes hear groups, individuals, saying things like, you know what we need today to make a difference in the world? We need less creeds, and we need more deeds. Less thinking, and more acting. But do you see here in Psalm 1 how God has designed all this? Do you see the link between meditation and production? Between thinking and doing study and service, it's only as the tree is planted by the water that it yields fruit, that it prospers. If you take the tree away from the water of God's Word, you don't end up with a more productive tree. That's not the way the image goes here. It's as we're planted by the water of God's Word, as we study the truth regularly. That's how we're changed. That's how we're able to go out and have a positive influence in our families and our community. I'll give you one final analogy we'll close with this. This is one of my favorite analogies on this subject of meditation. It's not original with me. I found it years ago in a book called Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life by a man named Donald Whitney. I think that was the first time I read of this analogy, but we're going to have to mix our images a little bit here at the end, so hang with me. In Psalm 1, we're the tree and God's word is the water. In this final analogy, we're the water. We're the water. Years ago when we lived in New Zealand, it was freezing cold in our house some of you know the stories so cold that our toothpaste would freeze in the bathroom so cold that in the winter time we could walk down the center hallway of our house exhale and see our breath inside the house that's how cold it was so I drank a lot of hot tea in those days I don't drink much tea now because it's Florida but back then I drank a lot and it was always a simple process simple yet transformative I would heat the water I would have the water ready, and then I would take the tea bag and put it in the water, and every time, tea. Simple, transformative. Coming to church on Sunday morning, like you're doing now, and listening to me preach, is like dipping the tea bag in the water one good time. Reading it, God's Word, a few times throughout the week, is like dipping it in a few more good times. But meditation, Meditation is like leaving the teabag in, letting it steep until all of the rich flavor has gone from the teabag into the water and changed it. Changed it all. If you haven't been meditating on God's Word, begin to do so. Apply those four practical steps I gave you today and watch how God's Word flavors you. Watch how it changes you, every drop of you. That's the power of God's word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have revealed yourself to us. We don't have to wonder what you're like. We don't have to wonder what you expect of us. You've told us. You've revealed yourself to us. You've revealed your plan for the world, the plan for our families, the plan for us as individuals. It's all here in your word. So help us to be people of the scriptures. As individuals, as families, as a church family, may we always be planted by the water. Only then, only then, will we be fruitful, will we flourish, will we prosper. In Jesus' name, amen.